Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Yahoo Fantasy Football. We've all made some bad choices in life. I know I have, like starting a restaurant in 2006 based on Korean burritos. But this isn't about me. It's about you. Don't make where you play fantasy football a bad life decision. Play Yahoo Fantasy Football. Yahoo offers up free expert advice. It has the best player experience, and they'll never delete your league history like other apps. Yahoo also has all kinds of fantasy games, like the new best ball, just draft and you're done. No trades, no waivers, no drama all season. Yahoo is the number one rated app by the FSGA, and it's my fantasy football league of choice. Make better choices, choose Yahoo Fantasy Football. And now, the Dave Chang Show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Big shout out to Yola Tango, as always, for the intro music of Past the Hatchet. This week, we have the CEO of Momofuku, Marguerite Mariscal, all of 30 years old, wise beyond her years. I can't imagine anyone else running Momofuku, and um, she's not just the best custodian for Momofuku. She's the best leader to take Momofuku in the next decade or two plus. I admire tremendously, and originally this podcast was to talk about restaurant openings of Major Domo, of Momofuku stuff, just chef world and culture. And one of the things we haven't really addressed is sort of restaurant business and uh, how one manages all of that and uh, identifying talent. And I think uh, this podcast, you will understand why I believe Marguerite to be one of the most special people I've ever met, and we are truly blessed to have her. So excited for you to hear our conversation. Wanted to get to a quick My Opinion as Fact. Uh, last week, I didn't get a chance to talk about the passing of David Berman. For those of you that don't know, he was the poet and singer of the Silver Jews and most recently Purple Mountains. Uh, they were about to go on tour. I bring up his name because he's another sort of person I looked up to that has taken their own life. And it's it's been hard. I, I didn't know him at all personally, but I followed his music religiously. And while I know people that were very close to him and I send my condolences to those friends, I want to talk about his music and who he is because it's something that I feel a lot of us, not just in the culinary universe, but just the world at large could understand. And his music really changed my life and influenced how we do business and how I cook more than you realize. And American Water, Bright Flight, Random Rules, these songs, for those that know me know how meaningful they are. Um, Death of an Air of Sorrows, Advice to a Young Graduate. There's a line in, in uh, Random Rules where he says, all my favorite singers couldn't sing. And I don't know of a line of any song that's moved me as much as that and inspired me to find my own voice. And uh, it's something that I spoke to Jerry Saltz about in our podcast about finding your voice regardless of whether you think you're good or not. And I remember reading an interview of David Berman about that line, all your favorite singers couldn't sing. And it's something that you have to have something to say. And it doesn't matter if you're not technically perfect or have the perfect pitch. And I can see a lot of similarities to cooking. It doesn't matter if you're not the best technician or you're not the proficient X, Y, and Z at cooking. What matters most of all, do you have an opinion? Do you have a new perspective? And do you make something delicious? And All My Favorite Singers Couldn't Sing is uh, something that I've really meditated on because all my favorite singers are Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, you know, Louis Armstrong, Dean Wareham, you name it. These things that he sort of wrote about and he really celebrated America and he celebrated looking at things in a new way. I never got to know him, but his music changed my life. And I wanted to share that with you guys because David Berman, all my favorite singers couldn't sing and you are one of them. You had a shitty voice, <laughs> but my God, was it, was it beautiful to me? So I hope, hopefully, if you listen to this podcast, go buy an album or two. The only book of poetry I've ever bought that wasn't mandatory by school was Actual Air 
and it came out in 1999. And I don't know if it's still in print, um, and I got to find out where it actually is, but that's the only book I have ever read of poetry from <laughs> front to back because it was that meaningful to me and all that he did. So here's to you, David Berman, a celebration of your life, and um, thank you. And if you guys are in need of help because David took his own life, we've talked about it in a couple mini pods, ask for help. It's not untreatable, as hard as it may seem. There's always a possible way out, and um, you're not alone. <sighs> Tough to talk about, but I didn't think it'd be right if I didn't talk about it. This is my podcast, and I wanted to talk about it, so... David Berman, one of my favorite artists of all time. Check out some of the Silver Jews albums. Read his work. Read his philosophy. And understand how he empathized the world. And I can't imagine how that's not going to make you a better person and his legacy can remain and live on. Um, Want to get to this podcast with Marguerite Mariscal? Here you guys go. I'll shut the fuck up now. I am with Marguerite Mariscal newly minted CEO of Momofuku Restaurant Group. I call you Marge, as do many people in the restaurant group call you Marge, but your parents and some other people that that are in our circle call you Daisy. And uh, it's because Marguerite means Daisy. (laughs) So um, Marge, I wanted you on this podcast. We've been trying to find the time to do this because I think people were a bit not surprised, but they were like, what's a 30-year-old woman doing, right? In fact, your own executive coach said, wow, this is a stretch. (laughs) Literally, she said, this is a stretch of the decision that you guys made. And I I told her that um, (laughs) she was going to learn more from you than Marguerite was going to learn more (laughs) than from the executive coach. But um, how are you handling all this? Uh, definitely every day is a new set of challenges. Um, obviously a lot of the work that I'm doing now, I've been doing for a little bit now. I think the scariest thing is not knowing everything for the first time. I'm intentionally doing a job that I've never done before or necessarily prepared for. But as you say, it's about making mistakes every day and getting better. And I think the advantage of being my age is that I'm not afraid to look dumb. (laughs) I'm not afraid to not know the answer and ask questions. And I genuinely believe that, you know, if I'm doing a good job, I'm not making all the decisions. I'm empowering the right people to do it. You know, the thing that I I joke about is as Momofuku matures and gets older, the only way we could do that was getting younger. And I love that sort of paradox, but I think you're wise beyond your years. And I have a hard time articulating it other than over the past sort of say, handful of years, I've been really pushing you to take on more of a leadership position. And I've always felt this is like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and everything. Like You never want to back the people that want the glory. You want to back the people that don't want it. And for many years, you were, you were almost allergic to the idea of having more of a responsibility. And because of that, I was like, oh, this is like Willy Wonka. She's the one. You're the only person that didn't want the power. And I was like- the unadorned goblet. (laughs) Yeah, you chose the wooden chalice. (laughs) And that's why I've always felt that you were incredibly special because you weren't going to be moved by, you know, the bullshit. I also think that I'm someone who, and this is a very Momofuku thing, I don't think you have to be in a powerful position to make change at our company. And I think I always felt that from whatever position I was in, I was able to do what needs to get done or what I want to do. Um, so I kind of never felt that having a title or having a set of responsibilities would be the difference between affecting change or not. And I think that's somewhat true, but I think clearly there is a difference <laughs> in terms of uh, the position I am in now. And I would say more so future facing direct where the company's going. Why were you so hesitant? All right. Were you like, <laughs> you even said this pretty early on. You're like, Dave, you really like to promote people that, what, how, how do you phrase it? I think we've, we have, for better or worse, because it is a meritocracy, I think we put people in positions of power that we believe have the right moral compass or they have the right 
overall idea of where we need to be. That being said, they might not have the skill sets or <laughs> the preparation. Uh, and you can see that, you know, obviously Joe coming in at Kawi or Sam Kang at Wyo, two people we think are like incredibly talented and more than that are like the right kind of leaders, but they are kind of learning on the job every single day because they haven't been in that position. That being said, I think I've seen the benefits of it where we've had executive chefs who've taken on more, who don't ask the right questions or are afraid to be vulnerable because they've been in a position of power and they think that's when you can't ask those kind of tough questions. So I think it's both a benefit and a setback. And I think I just never felt like I knew enough to be able to make the right decision. And I guess I don't know whether I just spent seven years working at the company and felt I finally did know enough, or I realized through maybe like other hires that it was kind of irrelevant in the end. Um, what's the process been like at Momofuku? Like, I'm thinking about a listener that's learning for the first time that the CEO of Momofuku is 30 years old. There's not many sort of case studies or peers that you could sort of follow, right? Um, how do they do what you do? How did I get here? Or how yeah, I mean, I, I think it? a lot of people are like, I want to be you. Uh, I don't know. The thing I always say, and I, I think this is true for any industry, but especially true in restaurants, is just genuinely working, not even necessarily harder, but, you know, I, I think I am where I am because I never used my job description as a metric of what I should or should not be doing. I think if there was a project that was interesting or if I saw someone who needed help, um, I would always jump at the opportunity. Um, and I think that's like, uh, like I remember uh, when I was an intern, um, your assistant was trying to get Pappy, which keep in mind was hard, but not as hard as it is now. Right now it'd be impossible. Uh, and she was calling around to some uh, local uh, liquor stores and couldn't find any. And then I just decided on my computer to find out who distributed Pappy. And then I called the distributor and the distributor gave me all the names of all of the liquor stores in New York that did they distributed to. And then I called each one of those and I finally found one place on the Upper East Side because I think at that point, Pappy hadn't made it to the Upper East Side as being like a hot commodity uh, and, you know, volunteered to then go up and, and grab it. So just whatever you can kind of start amassing in terms of uh, being helpful, um, there's always a need of an extra hand. Did you always have this work ethic? Because the one thing that was very clear about Marguerite was you were going to put in the work. There was no one that was going to tell you otherwise. And that was never going to be an excuse for a project to fail. And it's something I've long admired about you is you're always there. Um, I mean... <laughs> I think I think working for a family business, I think you inherently learn that and that it's really hard. It, maybe it's just me, but to half-ass it when it's your family that's on the other side. Um, and so I worked briefly as a cashier at my family's uh, place on the Upper West Side, uh, Zabar's, but I think I really learned it when I worked for my uncle, Eli. Uh, I worked at a farmer's market in Amagansett that he was running, and I thought it would be like just this beautiful farmer's market, and it would be super uh, relaxing after college, and I found out pretty quickly that I had to get there at 6 a.m. I usually wouldn't leave till 6 p.m., uh, and you just basically did whatever was needed and not only whatever was needed, but like to the best possible quality. And I always tell you that I think you're a peach compared to my uncle in terms of <laughs> working for. Uh, so I learned pretty quickly how to, you know, do whatever needed to get done. So I remember like I made espressos and I have no idea how to make an espresso to this day. I would work as a cashier. I would restock the counters. I would on the weekends make bacon, egg and cheeses. I would just, you know, run around and whatever needed help do. Um, and I think that mentality kind of transferred over to everything I've done since. Do you find it to be not funny, but the more and more we do this podcast or just in general, if you read about people that have been very successful, like Rene Redzepi, for example, when he talks about working at LB and the thousands of people that try to work there as stagiaires, maybe less than a hundred ever worked the line. And he was like, yeah, you just had to like want it more. You had to work harder. Um, and there's a whole conversation about getting those opportunities to begin with. But is it as simple as having the grit and determination to just outwork everyone? Is that the secret to success? I don't want to say it's just that. I think it's also, we talk about always working smarter, not harder, right? So I think some of it is working harder, but I think a lot of it's also 
having an, an opinion or a perspective and being willing to voice it. I think early on, for better or worse, uh, I was somewhat precocious in thinking my opinion mattered. And so, you know, the willingness to speak up or to, whether it's just to volunteer or to say whether you think something's a good or bad idea, I think that's something that people think comes with power as opposed to being willing at wherever stage you're at, voice that. And maybe there are some environments that are not conducive to that and probably aren't in place I should work. But if you work in the right environment that rewards that, people will notice and start to, uh, I think, pay attention. Um, it's, it's just dawned on me how fucking weird it is to interview you. <laughs> I uh, just jumped right in. <laughs> um, so as you can see, listeners, it was very easy for me just to talk to Marge all the time because she knew things better than I did. And she's more articulate than I am. So it was easy for me to just trust her. And from early on, and I remember you helping out with the move from Co, which is right around the time with Fuku. And then you did more and more sort of branding and you understood. And I've been saying this for a long time. I said, I think Marge understands what Momofuku is better than I do. Now, what is Momofuku to you? Like as a brand, because I, I never had to think about it because I've just always done it, but you've had to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I, I mean, I joined honestly because it was a brand. I remember I was a senior in college and they announced Lucky Peach and, you know, to see a restaurant group working with McSweeney's, which was another brand that I really admired at the time. And it was about more than just food. And I think Momofuku, without even really realizing it, has always been more about food. It's been a perspective. Uh, and whether that's democratizing good food, uh, which we do today in places like Hudson Yards and Time Warner Center, or whether that's the early days of not serving uh, vegetarian options, obviously that's changed dramatically. But it's never just about what's on the plate. It's also the intent. I mean, my favorite example, that's always uh, the opening menu for Sambar only had Dr. Pepper, Diet Dr. Pepper, San Pellegrino, and OB beer, something like that, um, which obviously we know what people want. We know people drink more Coke than Dr. Pepper, but that's not what we were trying to do. We were trying to make sure everything on the menu was there for a reason. So, you know, for me, I think what Momofuku is has definitely changed over time, and it's always been a moving target. And I think, you know, the way that we talk about it internally is kind of everyone's marching forward, but where the end goal is, it's never to be the biggest. It's never to be the most profitable. It's really to find kind of like the right balance or like the, you know, you always say it's like we're doing both at the same time. Um, and you can't grow and you can't be profitable without counterweighting it with making sure we're doing everything to our best ability or we're providing opportunities for others. And, you know, and I think that it sounds almost like a not answer, but it really is how we think about literally everything is weighing all the pros and cons and figuring out where to be on that spectrum. So what you just said, I can't imagine being very difficult. Why is it hard for people to work for us then? I think it's really hard. I think it is really hard. I think... Uh, I see it the most, honestly, when it comes to things like finance or operations where they're, they think there's a right answer. They think whether it's being more efficient is better or keeping costs down is better. And I think what's really hard is that that's never necessarily the right answer. It's always finding that balance between, hey, maybe we'll save a few uh, percentage points on this so that we can really blow it out. So, for example, just to make it more practical, on a menu for pricing, um, sure, there's a standard percentage in which items are priced, but that's all needs to be looked at. And we'll say, all right, we'll keep you know a higher food cost on the luxury items. Like, we want to give people caviar. We want to give people uni if we think the dish is better with it. So we'll eat it on that and make it up in other areas. And I think if you're coming from the finance team, you're always going to look at something as this is where you want to be and any deviation from it is bad. And it's almost like retraining people's brains that the end product needs to be where we want to be, but how you get there can be anything. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is how we talk about everything a lot. Um, <laughs> what's the best way to describe this is that we talk about this paradox a lot. Can you describe that paradox a little bit further? So, I mean, I think there's a really good Slate article about how there are chaos Muppets and order Muppets. And I feel like that's like actually a good way of explaining it is like there's people in Sesame Street that are like order and they speak in words you understand and, 
And then there's the chaos, you know, like Beaker and all these people that are just kind of like off the reservation. And it all makes sense in this universe together. And Momofuku is a little bit like that, where I think we constantly talk about order and chaos or how to make sure that you're never veering too far in one direction. That being said, it always needs to be equal parts of both. So um, another great example is Abstract. Morgan's project on Netflix, uh, there's that great episode with Christoph uh, Nieman, Nyman about how for him to do his job well, he needs to be 100% creative and 100% an editor. And he can't be 50%, 50% because then you get bad product. So we have to constantly be thinking completely outside the box, bonkers solutions to problems. And then we need to like really harshly criticize those as to, is that the best way forward? Um, but if you don't do the first exercise and you're only editing then you're going to get kind of either the answer everyone else has or you're going to get like a safe a safe end product. Why do you think it's been such a struggle for us to have people embrace this? Because I, I just know that we would have a lot of commiserating and misery about why can't we get people to do this? And you were the only person I could sort of talk to about this. I think it's almost like reprogramming people to think the most basic question doesn't have an obvious answer. And... I also think that, you know, to keep doing what you're doing is sometimes the easiest solution. It's really hard, you know, to stop momentum. So getting people to pause and and ask themselves a, a laundry list of questions before making a decision that might to other people seem pretty standard. Um, you know, I think you also have to see the results of that. And I think I've had the benefit of both many years at Momofuku. So I've seen this play out. I've seen the person do the thing that they think is right, standard, and you know, have it not work out. And I've seen the craziest possible solutions result in the best uh, end product. I also think I have had the benefit, you know, especially over the past couple of years of by working across all the restaurants, it really is such an advantage because I can see the same problem at Major Domo that I'm seeing at Noodle Bar. And I get why, while they might seem totally different on, on the surface, they're coming from the same mind state. And then I think you've gotten infinitely better over time explaining that and being able to kind of give feedback in a way that that's understandable because it wasn't before. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you I think, you know, you've whether it's the podcast which I think has been immensely helpful in that or just as you said seeing it and I think, you know, the amount of time you worked uh, at Major Domo especially in the kitchen, you were seeing things in the kitchen that you haven't seen in years because it's the first time you really were back in there and I think maybe in some of that it started to click and you could start to empathize but also criticize in a good way kind of have systems and processes and how those work. Momofuku's gone through a lot of peaks and valleys. And when you came on board, that was the tail week. end of the first like period of craziness. I came the first week that Sayobo was open. So right. you were- I, in, I wouldn't even see you. Yeah, I like didn't meet you for months. I didn't meet my boss for <laughs> like a month. Yeah, everyone was out uh, in Sydney at that point, opening the restaurant. <sighs> yeah, that was me running away from everything. Um yeah, that was probably like on the downswing of things. And then after Toronto, we just sort of didn't do anything for a long time. It was about maintaining. What do you think that period was from, say, 2012 to 16? I think everyone wanted to capitalize on what Momofuku was. And to do that, people thought that meant somewhat copying and pasting what worked in other cities and other applications. Um and I think what's always been really true to Momofuku is that whatever we do needs to be responsive to where it is and what it is. And we learned that the hard way, you know, even if you think about opening Maupesh in Midtown. Um, I recently, I, I'll have to show you, I recently looked at the menu and I don't understand half of it. <laughs> and if I didn't understand half of it, then a suit in Midtown where no backs on the chairs and no dessert offered definitely wouldn't have gotten it. And we made a lot of drastic changes to that restaurant afterwards and kind of learned. And, you know, even opening uh, in Toronto where all the staff trained with our staff in New York City and we found out really quickly the the perception of kindness in Toronto is very different than the East Village. And we had um, all of our guests kind of asking why everyone was so mean because <laughs> they just weren't used to <laughs> how we run things at, at Noodle Bar and Sambar. And so I think it was really a growing phase of understanding that 
the only way to be successful is to take what we did and use it almost as DNA, which I think Sayobo actually did a really good job at. Maybe because it was so far away and so different that people got it. And I don't think people understood that that same exact thing applies to Toronto. That same exact thing applies to Midtown New York. And that was kind of this this interesting process of seeing it not work in some ways. Um, We always talk about how we couldn't be where we are now if Nishi didn't happen because we kind of had to like eat shit to then figure out how actually do we grow and provide value to the places that we're opening. And this is important part, right? Because this is always going to go down in Momofuku sort of uh, education to our own employees. Uh, What were you seeing when we opened up Nishi? Because this is a critical point in our company. And what happened? I mean, we had this space, which honestly was being built out at the same exact time we were building out another restaurant, which I think we learned from that experience is a no-no. Like you really have to focus in on whatever you're doing almost completely. Um, So it was being built out while we were opening uh, our DC restaurant. And it was our first restaurant on the West side. It was uh, in Chelsea in New York. And it was supposed to be a noodle bar. Then, you know, there was a while, I recently remembered this. We were talking about it being a fuku for a bit too. Yeah, fuku plus. Fuku plus, the first, yeah, the first fuku plus. And then it pivoted into the fuku coming, board thought I was in dumbass. Uh, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> not, and the idea was that you could do delivery out of it. You could also serve food. Maybe we'd even serve fuku food plus some noodle bar food. It was all nutso. And I would say, for you know, problem two after not focus was also just not really having rules, right? What is this thing? What's the sandbox that it operates in? And from there, it became Mishi, which conceptually everyone was very on board with and was basically a new concept that we hadn't tried before. But the problem is at that point, the space was completely built out. We had spent all of our dollars on it and it looked like a noodle bar, like 171 First Avenue, which is the original noodle bar. And so you had a restaurant that was trying for the first time to do a tip-inclusive pricing, which is really tough, um, as all of New York City has figured out. It was uncomfortable because the price point was supposed to be way lower than I would say what this new concept was. And I think I also always think back about it personally because I feel like I should have known that it wasn't going to work well before we opened. Not in that all the things that we talk about constantly about decor or or pricing and all that, uh, the proposed check average for this restaurant to be successful was a number higher than any check average we had ever hit outside of Co. And I heard that number, but I didn't know that it was lower, the higher than everything else at our other restaurants. And so I went along with it like, okay, no problem. We got this. We got this. And it's only now that I look back that it was just really bad info, right? Like you would have known that it wasn't going to work if you heard those numbers. And I think we as a company, apart from how we've changed how we design restaurants or the process to build them, education of everyone in our home base office and education on our chefs and general managers so they understand P&Ls and they understand the financials, that has been a huge shift since we opened Nishi because just based on literally the facts at hand, we shouldn't have done it in the first place. And I mentioned that because that was, I think, the first time you started to take charge regardless of your position on a much larger level. Alex our president at the time was really spearheading the project. Alex is now the CEO of Fuku. And you were in charge because I was, I won't say I was checked out, but my confidence was at an all-time low. And I was just like, I I can't, and I've already fucked this up. So, you know, people will comment like, oh, Momofuku, it's really growing up. Momofuku has chairs and sambar and all of these things. I can't take any credit for it because Marge was the person behind shaping the culture at each of these new restaurants, the existing restaurants. And when I said you understood Momofuku better than me, I didn't know how to translate it moving forward because I was just too close to it. And I really have thought about this a lot, is that because you were coming from the outside, but had a deep understanding of where it was in the beginning and where it was today and where it might go, you're able to synthesize it in a way that I couldn't see it. And you decided what to do what with Nishi. So yeah, I, I like saw the ship going down before before we got any reviews, before anything happened. Um, 
And so we basically immediately started game planning how we were going to make it into the restaurant that we thought it could be. So it was everything from, um, you know, we installed sound paneling on like literally half the restaurant. Uh, we bartered with uh, Mudo, this Danish furniture company. And basically uh, myself and Noel, our head of partnerships, worked in a booth for five days selling bunt cake to people at Mudo's showroom in order for us to get nicer chairs with backs to put into Nishi. Uh, we also, you know, we worked with Pinsky and, and redid the menu um, and kind of made it a little bit more focused. We removed the footnotes um, and it was a lot of work. You basically removed all traces of the shit that I decided was a good idea. <laughs> or the traces of, of what was left from the, the non-noodle bar. Um, but, and now, I mean, I, it's like genuinely in a way that I'm proud of, a neighborhood restaurant that, you know, we get, I would say, a vast majority of people that come in don't even know what Momofugu is because it's just a, you know, vaguely Italian restaurant uh, with banquettes and the food's super, super tasty. Certain things like the Chechi Pepe have have lived on. And I think, you know, for us, my biggest takeaway, I think, for my time, that period at Momofuku, was that everyone thought they knew what Momofuku was. And they thought it was backless duels. They thought it was loud music. They thought it was being um, unaccommodating. All these things that honestly, we're born out of restraint. You know, we didn't serve tons of vegetarian options at Noodle Bar because there literally wasn't the capacity to do it at the original Noodle Bar. And the plywood came out of you getting a loan from your dad to build out this space. So we kind of, I don't know, I took an inventory of what are things that we did because we had to and what are things that we did because we believe in them to this day. And I think, you know, it turns out that a lot of the things that people equated with Momofuku or these physical representations of it were not actually core to, I think, our identity. And if anything, I think we as a business, we're always just growing and moving and changing and adapting to our environment. Um, it's like the goldfish that grows as big as its uh, bowl. We're always kind of figuring out what to do. And we never write menus before going into spaces. And we never design restaurants without spending time in the area. We really feel like these places need to be reflective of where they are in the same way that you could argue Noodle Bar 171 and all of that was reflective of where it was and mm. reflective of its time. And people didn't think about that. They just thought about this is what it looks like and this is what it is. And so a lot of what I think I've done is help hit the reset button every single time we open a restaurant. Never make any assumptions about we're going to do this because we did it elsewhere or that worked here so it's going to work there. Uh, you know, we always talk about what got us here won't get us there. And so making sure that every new venture, whether it's a restaurant or a product or anything, goes through that crucible so that we're getting a product that is actually representative of where we want to be. And Sambar, after Nishi, you went head into redoing Sambar. Yeah. I mean, everything that you could complain about Nishi, you could complain about the physical space of Sambar. And so we basically, once again, did the same exercise. What's parts of that space are kind of core to its identity and what, once again, was because the space was open in 2006 and hadn't been redesigned. And I think we learned, um, I mean, this was a big struggle at Mopesh. Uh, we conceptually reinvented it multiple times. I mean, Paul, I genuinely think that was the best Momofuku restaurant in that year, if not, you know, years to come, was Paul Carmichael's menu at Mopesh. But what I learned from that is that if you're not also changing the space, or kind of giving people visual cues, a lot of people will miss it. They're not as attuned. They're not as, uh, you know, not everyone's reading Eater every day to find out what's happening. And so we felt, you know, as we transitioned the menu and, and Sambar went into its 11th year, which is nuts, we had to do something to physically show uh, maturity in the same way that the menu had been for years and years prior. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Day Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. 
ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, their smartest way to hire. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Discount Tire. When was the last time you thought about your tires? Tires are what makes a difference in how your car feels and drives. Since 1960, Discount Tire has been keeping customers safe by taking care of all your tire and wheel needs. With over 1,000 locations across 34 states, their main focus is your safety and the safety of everyone else on the road. Discount Tire provides tire rotations, balancing free flat repairs, free air checks, and more. And because safety is so important, they provide free tire safety inspections. Discount Tire also has the lowest prices on the best and largest selection of tires and wheels. They'll even make personalized recommendations for you based on your zip code and driving preferences. Whether you need an air check or a set of tires and wheels, Discount Tire can help you get back on the road with peace of mind and change to spare. Visit Discount Tire to shop, research, and purchase your tires today. You can even make an appointment to skip the lines. That's DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire. They'll get you taken care of. And now, back to the show. There's a lot been said, and we'll maybe do a deeper dive in the sambar, but I always have these moments of clarity, <laughs> and they're minutiae things that give me not just hope, but I'm like, oh, everything's going to be okay. And in the bathrooms of sambar, what was proposed and then ultimately executed was these designs of tennis rackets and broken tennis rackets and the numbers 207, which is the address for Sambar, and the theme of our patron saint of Momofuku, John McEnroe, throughout the redesign. And it was done in such a clever way and seamless way. I was like, holy fuck. Marge has a better understanding of how to put this into a restaurant space and everything has a purpose and a meaning I was like, I, I really was like, she definitely knows this better than me now. I, I, I was like, this. I didn't tell Dave about the wallpaper before we uh, put it in. Yeah, I, I didn't think because I think there's certain things like wallpaper that most people would say would never set foot in a Momofuku restaurant. So that was a little bit of a sneak, and I'm glad it worked. <laughs> and when I and when I saw that, I was like, fuck me! Like again, something that most people probably would not recognize, but I knew that was just. The decision to do that and then to stand by it and then to execute it to me without even telling me, that was the best thing that I'd ever seen. Because it was like, I believe in something and I, I'm going to execute it. And I think a lot of people may not agree with that. But for me, I just thought that was the coolest shit ever. So I was like, yes, we need more of this. Like, fuck you, Dave. And honestly, that was that was the beginning of a lot of times you just straight up disagreeing with me. And I love that shit. and. There was also that period where I don't remember what the fuck I said to you. And you got so mad at me. You wanted to pull me aside, set aside time. And you basically let me have it. And I said, Marge, I'm sorry. I didn't know what the fuck. I don't even know what I did that made you so upset. But I was like, I don't remember anyone telling me, hey, dummy, you said something that fucking was stupid. And I don't remember. All I remember is like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> Do you remember that day? I, I could do remember it. I think it was honestly in like 2014 or something like that, which, you know, probably once again, a different company, probably the wrong decision. But I don't know. I think I think I've it was not even about me. I think it's like I saw how people perceived what you said and it was not the intended effect potentially. And encouraging other people <laughs> to do the same. Honestly, in 2014. How old were you? Uh, I don't know. Like. 24, 24, 24 year old saying, I would like to schedule some time with you <laughs> and then read me the fucking riot act. <laughs> I was like, this is fucking amazing. And I apologize profusely. I was like, I don't want to hurt your feelings. That's not what I intended. But I also think that it, maybe this is going back to the, the fluency thing. Like I understood what your intent was, right? I didn't think like for all of, we've had this conversation before, but whenever you get, you know, upset or whenever you disagree, and this is the same as the thing I see in my uncle, it's because you want the best result. It's not done out of any sort of 
malice or any sort of I'm right, you're wrong. It's like really trying to get to the best solution. Or if you think someone is not thinking critically enough or paying enough attention to what's happening. And so I guess I knew maybe because of that or whatever it was that what you had said to these people wasn't what you intended. And if I told you, you wouldn't get mad at me, you would no, and you'd agree. And I think that was like a risk I was willing to take, I guess. And I processed that almost immediately. And I was like, wow, we had just started to work a lot closer. And I was blown away at how fucking much you cared. And I had seen bits and pieces, obviously, wherever the fuck I was or whatever needed to happen, you were always there. I was like, oh, this is a good sign. Like she works her ass off. I, I always like that. And then I just saw that you genuinely cared and you didn't care necessarily even about the business per se. You cared because you wanted to make it right. Right was better than anything else. And I was like, you might be the only person I think I, that has ever done that. And I've told you this throughout our entire sort of working relationship. I was like, fuck, like, I don't know if anyone cares about anything as much as I do other than Marge. I know certainly some chefs do, but from, uh, non-culinary perspective, I was like, fuck, like, and you were so young, which is why at that moment around that time, I, I was really seating in my own head. I was like, if she continues to develop and we continue to sort of make this opportunity for her greater, then she could be the only person because we were, I was always looking for this. Again, the, the funniest thing is I don't know why anyone thinks a chef would be good at operating a fucking company. <laughs> <laughs> like I was okay at best for a certain period of time, but I was always looking for it. And we've had good custodians throughout the years that have helped us grow and get to certain places. But I was looking for someone that could have a moral compass that was never going to waver. And I definitely found that in you. And then, um, you know, after the success of Sambar, what were you focusing on then? Although the fucking, we had so much shit going on. I just on. think Domo. Domo was the next, the next thing. Vegas and then Domo. Can you talk about Domo? Because this is when we started to really work, like, we were like uh, very synchronized. Yeah. I mean, I always felt like, I think Domo is such a good example of you getting to do the things that you are not only extremely good at, but also enjoy. And I don't mean that in, in that it's selfish of you. It, I think everyone saw immediately that it positively impacted the entire business because your attitude was better and your uh, just propensity to, whether it's like discover new ways of doing things or the way that you address the staff. Um, I think you had just been previously bogged down in such, you know, as you said, like the operational aspect of the job. And so the more we kind of, as a company, as, as I talked about after Nishi, started kind of educating more of the uh, home-based kind of uh, office team and kind of assigning those tasks and taking those pieces off of you, you could focus on the things that add the most value to the company. So, you know, you moved to LA when? Like um, over the summer? Yeah. We didn't open until uh, January. And so Dave just spent time in LA almost running like a boot camp out of uh, the line hotel with the management team and kind of creating that culture there. And I think you and I were very adamant that the only way the restaurant was going to work, given how far away it was from anything, was to create something great and create something destination worthy. And, you know, we decided to not even call it a Momofuku restaurant because it sent the wrong perception of what we were trying to do. And so you were kind of left to build that. You know, it's like literally from scratch, as we talked about, like take some of Momofuku's DNA, but figure it out what needed to get scrapped, what needed to get added to make this restaurant make sense in LA. And I think once again, people's inherent uh, response, not out of laziness, but just out of how they're programmed is to want to do things the exact same way every way. So, you know, our operators wanted to run training the same way that we've always run training and they wanted to, you know, do recipes the same way we've always done recipes. And the real Momofuku answer would be to kind of throw some of that to the wind and figure out what made sense for that space. And I really credit it with a lot of ways. I mean, you can see it kind of in culinary in terms of like the Bing, for example, and how it's kind of uh, manifested itself across the Momofuku universe, or even how we approach training in general. It was almost Major Domo was like a reset button in a lot of great ways. Um, and I think really kind of carried our company into like the next chapter in some ways. We made 
a real effort to kill anything that was Momofuku. Yeah. Yeah. And the name was very significant. And Major Domo was great because it sort of had the same vowel thing that Momofuku does, but it was like West Coast and it has nothing. There's no recipes. Mm-hmm. We just literally opened up a new restaurant that we've never done before, taking a lot of the principles of Nishi. Yeah. I mean, it's basically Nishi West Coast. Yeah. It was like, yeah, the bone, it's like the bones of Nishi reassembled in a different framework that made more sense. Like I, you know, and I, I preach this all the time and you can kind of see this in, in Wyo right now is I think Nishi was an exercise in almost over-explaining or over-articulating what we were trying to do. And I think Major Domo, uh, you can kind of see it in a lot of dishes and it's all that matters at the end of the day is that it tastes, it's really delicious. And everything else, the thought process that obviously you spent hundreds of hours <laughs> nailing down is there and it's visible and you can take it if you want to take it. But it's the background. It needs to be, we talked about this, like the best case scenario is you have someone driving an hour just to eat there. Or the other metric that we use a lot is if a couple, you know, they had a baby, they've been home cooped up and this is their first meal that they're eating after uh, leaving the house. And you want that experience to be like everything, right? It's, it's, we shouldn't be cooking for the people that eat at our restaurants weekly, monthly. Like the best example for doing a good job is if someone who rarely gets to dine at restaurants like Major Domo has the best time of their life. So that was kind of the standard, which is obviously immensely, immensely high. So almost take the intellectual aspect out of it, take the all of the background and just make it a fun restaurant with delicious food, but have the foundation of this very thoughtful process that went into everything. She's so much more articulate than me. <laughs> the, the, can you talk about the crazy workload? Like even before you were announced as CEO, this has been something that we've been working on for a long time, right? It's been uh, a long time because there have been a lot of moving pieces that had to have happened. But before you were sort of tapped, how many restaurants did we open up from Major Domo? I think we opened up like, well, ooh, it's some crazy number. I mean, I think we're almost like eight, in, including renovations, like eight in two years, something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, nuts, oh, nuts, oh. And I mean, stuff that, I mean, we've talked about this. Like, I, I don't believe it's sustainable. And I think what I've had to kind of learn, you know, in some of those timelines weren't necessarily our choice, right? A restaurant gets delayed with construction and then all of a sudden it's stacked up against another one. Or, you know, we signed the lease uh, for South Street Seaport, which just opened in July uh, in 2016. So, you know, things obviously, at restaurants, nothing works out the way that you intended. But I don't know. I think something I've had to learn is, you know, I people always talk about the golden rule, treat people the way that you want to be treated. And I've learned that it's complete bullshit. And that if you treat people the way that you want to be treated, it's selfish and unsustainable. So it's not even about my workload. It's about how do I manage the workloads of everyone else? Because if I expect anyone to work the way that I work or to prioritize the things that I prioritize, which is work always, you're not going to have a staff that is going to be with you. So I, if anything, you know, I'm working on slowing down some of this growth uh, and maybe it's smarter growth at the same speed. Maybe it's half the restaurants that we've done in the past couple of years. But A, as we talked about before, you just need to be A, smarter about how you're opening and making sure everything's getting the attention and making sure you're not burning people out because uh, that's been a big problem, I think, at Momofuku historically is we have people, you know, don't get me wrong, who've been, you know, we have employees, 15, 14-year employees, but we also have a lot of people that come in one year and are out the next because they either didn't expect it or it doesn't align with their uh, personal schedules. So how do we become a place where as a lot of our workforce starts to have kids and families and can't spend all of their time working, how do we make this a sustainable model for them? And whether that's giving them uh, better benefits, uh, 401ks, uh, better coverage, or just figuring it out where maybe they're opening one restaurant a year and they're pouring themselves into that, but it's not physical time away. Um, those are all things that we like have to wrestle with. And, and the only way for us to grow is to better take care of those people. I'm thinking about, you know, I started out talking about the executive coach and uh, one of the things that I wanted Marge to get, whether uh, it was successful or not, was just to get in the mindset because I think, you know, she's, and you are more mature than most people, but having to sit down and to give sort of this pre-360 feedback to an executive coach, and she's been doing it for a long time and celebrated and all this other stuff. And 
there was a moment where I said, she's going <laughs> to, she's like, she's always commenting on your, your age to me and how significant that is because of maturity. And maybe you don't want to talk as much as a 50 year old dude, which is literally <laughs> what she said. And I was like, no, you're wrong. Because if you've just been listening to the past 30, 40 minutes, I think it's very clear that age got nothing to do with maturity level. And I, and I really said, by the end of your sessions with Marge, you, the executive coach, you're going to learn more than Marge ever learned from you. And I really fucking believe that. Age has nothing to do with it. We put too much of a significance on it. Certainly it does, but I think it has to do with your openness to learning, to having a certain sense of humility. But I mean, I, what you just said was like, who the fuck is ever going to say, I want to control my growth. I want to make sure we slow it down. That's just not the world we live in. Yeah. I mean, if it's the same thing, I mean, we always talk about this in, in the kitchen. It's like when you're in the weeds, the dumbest thing you can do is to go faster. You have to slow down and you have to like take stock of, of what's happening. And Yeah, but Marge, people don't learn that until they're fucking 10 years in. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I've seen, I've seen it, right? I've seen it. I just haven't necessarily been the one. It's like I, I had the benefit of almost eight years at this point of, of observing. And I think, you know, I think I'm also very lucky in that the impression I get, at least when I talk to people about executive coaches, is it's someone they can confide in and someone they can be honest with. And I'm lucky enough at Momofuku to, with our team, be able to be honest and get perspective and, um, you know, not being afraid to fall on my face. And so... I feel like what I need outside counsel on is is not necessarily the same thing maybe as some other people. I can only imagine if you're an executive that came into a company that's been around for 30 years and you're the new person and you don't know how to handle certain situations or maybe uh, what someone might think or do, I'm almost like, you know, on the inside. So I think that that's unique. Um, I do think what's really interesting, and I mean, I can only imagine in your early days working at noodle bar and, and sambar is the one thing that I think is kind of crazy about this position is like you really, besides something like an executive coach or doing a 360 review, it's really hard to get feedback. No one wants to tell you you're not doing a good job. No one wants to tell you that you mishandled something. And that's all I want. I want people to tell me that I fucked up or that I, you know, could have handled something better or I wasn't being sensitive enough. Or honestly, right now, my biggest problem is just enough time to focus on all these different things. And what I've been trying to tell people is that they need to tell me if I need to focus on something because, you know, I still read every log uh, every day from our restaurants. We get daily reports about sales, but also guest incidents or how things went, uh, what did we sell the most of. Um, but I kind of need a tap from our head of operations or I need a tap from uh, our CFO to say, hey, like hone in on this and, and spend some real time here. Because I used to inherently know all those things, and I used to be, have my hands in literally everything, and now I need a little more guidance in that. And I'm sure it's even 10 times more for you <laughs> in that I think there's an expectation that you're all-knowing, right? Or you're if it was important, you'd be paying attention to it, when the reality is a lot of times it's under your nose. And that's why you chose the wooden cup. You know, and, and it's, it's also the reason why you're the boss literally on paper and how the company is organized legally. You're my boss and I'm totally okay <laughs> with that, you know, um, because like you just don't look at these things as anyone else would. And I mean, I told you so many times, like you're the only fucking person I could ever trust. Not that we don't have, we're, we're so deep in our company right now with wonderful people, super talented, but like. I don't know why we've gone through hell and back, it seems, through so many different things. And, you know, just a couple more topics. How do we fight inherited success? Because that's something that has become a hot topic in our company. Is and we, we sort of talked about it with Young Kippur. Um, I made Marge read uh, The Birth of Tragedy by Nietzsche, which is, again, like going to sound crazy, but I feel like if... Greek civilization, which was the pinnacle of the Western world, could peter out and die because their success basically caused them to die. I mean, to, to lose their juice because they eventually just gravitated towards just embracing rational thought, editing in their head, and just trying to do the, the, the easiest things because it made the most sense. You know, and along that way, no one actually wants to suffer. And we go back to this over and over and over again. 
And we have seen, without going too deep into it, when you reject suffering, it's hard. And I think it's the same kind of problems people have with fighting inherited wealth to make sure that the next generation aren't spoiled brats. Very similar. It's the same thing you see in sports when teams win a Super Bowl and then it always goes to shit the next year. <laughs> or we, I mean, we did a, do you remember this? We did a uh, all company watching of the U, the 30 for 30. Uh, and <laughs> it was exactly the same thing. And I think a lot of that was people not, I don't know if you, <laughs> I remember it was a trial, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think people forget why they were able to have a swagger, right? Or why they were able to act a certain way. And I think we always try to preach this, but it's harder to do than to say is that you have to understand the rules to break them. And I think that that it's almost like education is my answer is how we literally just did, um, at Sambar, and we're going to do one at, at Bong Bar next week. And it sounds silly, but it's just like a 101. Like we sat down and talked about, you know, we looked at the original menu. We talked about how it went from that to the late night menu and how the late night menu then took over. We talked about the Bosom and why it existed and what the intent was. Uh, and then we kind of went chef for chef over its time and talked about how did the menu change, but more importantly, what stayed consistent? What were kind of the rules that we abided by, and what were the rules that we ultimately threw out. And in my perspective, the only way that you're going to get people to start thinking critically or to understand why things operate the way that they operate is to give them the power of that knowledge. And that comboed with, as you, I mean, you talked about this, um, you know, when it comes to dishes and, and in a lot of ways, not oversimplifying. Like we talk about at Bong Bar, if they ever stopped making the dough, if they started freezing or at Major Domo, if they ever started freezing the Bingdo and just using it the next day as opposed to creating it, rolling it out to order, it would kill the entire thing because you have to bake in some, some struggle. You have to bake in um, some potential failure for people to stay on their toes. And kind of that's the only way in my mind you can fight that natural ability. But I would say like this is – I. I think this is such a good example um, of how I think you can do it well versus not well. It's not enough to tell people that if you froze it, it would be the death of Majordomo. The only way to get there is when you guys were doing tests uh, in the R&D kitchen uh, at the line was you literally did it every single way. You froze it. You freeze it as ball, then rolled it out. You rolled it out, then froze it. You made them, left them, pre-rolled out, then uh, just did them to order. And every single person ate them and everyone decided that the best one was the one fresh dough, rolled out to order, then griddled. And if every single person can understand why we do it the way that we do it, not being told by you that it has to be harder than it needs to be, if they understand why it's hard, that to me is the, the crucial, crucial difference between people just doing and people understanding and then kind of they're the steward of it, right? They're the ones that are then telling the next person, no, 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 you can't do this, as opposed to it being like, well, Dave said we can't. And I wanted to make sure that one of the central components of the restaurant was the dumbest fucking thing we could possibly do. But even if you have that, no, it doesn't, the no next guarantees. generation, <laughs> yeah. fifth generation or major domo, like you build a restaurant, you should always bear in mind you're building a restaurant for not five years or even two years out, forever. You're trying to. And what happens with employee number 10,000? How do they know the history? Which is why we talk about religion a lot. Yeah, that and, and I think something that was one of the early things I, I forced you on was codifying some of this. Um, I remember when we started, there was always this idea, which I, I totally get, that if you start to codify these things, you start to write them down. They start to lose their meaning. You know, I've been to major corporation offices that have in giant decals, you know, their, their core values on a wall. And it's like, makes you want to puke. Um, so what I've been struggling with over the past couple of years is how do you record some of this? How do you almost give a new hire a toolkit to understand not what they're supposed to do, but how they're supposed to think? Because, you know, we're all broken records, right? We say the same things over and over again, like, you know, and how do you make sure that when a new hire hears you say, don't edit in your head, or a new hire hears you say, well, gosh, you won't get us there. They're not hearing it for the first time. They already understand the logic behind it. So we've been working on some steps like that uh, and trying to really put together an orientation that's not just factual, but kind of conceptual to some degree. 
and use it almost as our our indoctrination to this way of thinking. Um, so no data yet as to whether that is going to work or be successful, but we had to try something new in that your ability as the company gets bigger and bigger, it's not about you and I enforcing these principles. It's about everyone who's currently here doing it and then passing it on to the next person who comes in. Um, what's the next future look like for Momofuku? What do you want to happen? Uh, I want a couple of things. I want, I want us to focus more on the things that matter. I think we're in a process right now of putting a lot of systems in place to kind of streamline some of the things that we don't think that are honestly make operators better. So giving them more tools to manage their business, make decisions, think critically so that we can continue to grow. I think we have a really unique growth style and that we do open one-off restaurants where we empower the chef and the general manager to run the show and to kind of treat it as their space. And that means that there's a lot more latitude in terms of what they can do and, and what they should do. Uh, we don't have a cookie cutter box of recipes or or a way to operate. Um, and so kind of how do you at least get the fundamentals down so that they can focus on the things that matter? They can focus on where their touch is coming in, what they're deciding to change, uh, as opposed to it being just a free-for-all every single time. Um, so making their lives more efficient while still focusing on, on what matters. Um, there's that, I think, uh, diversifying ourselves out of restaurants. Um, you know, I think we've had a real run recently, but as I'm sure Dave has mentioned on many episodes, uh, the restaurant business is a really dumb business and you put so much time and love and care into creating these spaces and you're inherently, your margins are always going to be shit and they're getting harder and harder every year, especially in New York. Um, you know, labor is up to 35 to 50% at restaurants. That's insane. And we're totally supportive in that. People need to be paid more for their work. So how do you make margins higher so that you can pay people more? So we're looking into, you know, we have some new concepts coming out in the next year that, you know, I think figure out more efficient ways of using labor. I think also consumer packaged goods and, you know, how do we take what we're good at in the restaurants, which is kind of creating uh flavors that are unique to us uh, and how do you kind of amplify that message, uh, especially with you on Hulu and Netflix. You know, we're getting exposure so much more than we ever did before. And how do you make sure that it's not just if you live in the few cities we have restaurants that you can experience a part of what our company is and what we value. And the thing that I'm always the most proud of is we've never made a product that we don't use in our restaurants. Like for me, the kiss of death is like making canned soup or, you know, tomato sauce that you would never touch in your own restaurant. Everything we put out, we treat with the same intensity and, and scrutiny that goes into our restaurants. Um, and it, it's the same thing with restaurants. Like I always, you know, joke about how like we don't have a secret restaurant and like Cancun that we don't talk about. Like, not we, yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned. Uh, but we treat all of our restaurants equally with the same attention and the same tenacity. And it's going to be the same thing for everything we do moving forward. I think um, the world's going to see just how talented you are and how dedicated you are and what a giving person you are to the people you work with. What a great daughter you are to your family. And I really believe that you're a rare talent. And I'm, couldn't be prouder of the fact that you represent this company and everything that we try to be better at. So if anything, like, again, I'm thankful to your, your parents and to your whole, this whole Zabar family, because they've done a remarkable job of, of, uh, of teaching you the right values and everything. And, uh, I excited to see where you take Momofuku. Uh, I got your back and we have a lot of exciting projects and I've always gotten too much credit for everything Momofuku's done. So I, hopefully people can see, very clearly, with enough evidence that uh, there have been many people changing the the future of what Momofuku is, and, and now it's under the, the the stewardship of Marguerite Mariscal. So we'll get you out of here. I know you hate doing this shit, um, but I'm telling you, you're going to better get used to it because people are going to want to talk to you a lot. I see a lot of uh, uh, conferences, uh, keynote speaking bullshit in your future. That's what the Magic 8-Ball says. Yikes. All right. Thanks, Mark. Well, that was my conversation with Marguerite Mariscal. 
I know it jumped a little bit all over the place and it was a very strange interview for me because I'm interviewing someone I talk to on a day-to-day basis and someone I really admire. I just, I learn a lot from Marguerite and her decision-making and uh, she has all the characteristics in someone I I really want to not just work with, but sort of, I can see where she's going to go and where she's going to take this company. And I've taken it as far as I can go. And I talked a little bit about the executive coach and I told this executive coach this thing, and I know it was for a private session, but I'll tell you the, one of the things I did tell her, and she's like, why would you want to give up the control of this company? And I'm not going anywhere. Technically, I guess I'm the chairman, but I'm focusing on media and trying to have a better work-life balance. Like I work a fucking ton, guys. I'm working more than ever before. And I need to focus on better using my time. And there's no one I would rather entrust into making the day-to-day decisions of Momofuku than Marguerite. And she is definitely going to take this company to bigger and better places than I ever could. And I'm okay admitting that. And the question from this coach that Marge has is, why would I give that up? She said, like, that's something a lot of very few founders would be willing to do because they love their company. They always preach they love their company. And my response is this, and I'll tell you this because I think it's a lot to think about and I have to remind myself of it. I thought about it. I was like, I think if you really love your company, then you'll find a way to find your successor because the worst thing you can do is think that you're the best person for the job and there's no one else. And if you really love your company, you'll find a way to step down at some point. And if you think that no one else can do a better job than you and that you're the only person that can navigate a company's future through the ebbs and flows and the good and the bad, then you're really just saying like, oh, you can't leave it and no one else can do it. It's just like, you're basically saying like, you love yourself more than you love your own company and the people that work there. And I know that you could see it a lot of different ways, but that's how I see it. I, I really feel like if, if you can't leave your company and The way I look at this is just about every fucking job in restaurants and what I tried to explain to all the people in our staff and our team is that for you to be successful at this job, you need to make yourself replaceable. That's your end goal. Your personal goal to the contributions of the team and the company of Momofuku is can you make yourself replaceable? And I think that initially when you tell that to someone, they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? The caveat is this. Can you make yourself replaceable? To the point where when you are replaced, it now works better without you. And that's what I mean is like, I want to make sure that that's the goal for Momofuku. And uh, listen, there's no guarantees and it's a lot of pressure. And that's one of my great sort of concerns is the kinds of stress and pressures that are placed around Marguerite, but she's the toughest. She's so fucking tough. She's tough because she's also vulnerable and she's very honest and she's not this bullshit tough. She's real tough. And I think for her to make new kinds of decisions and new kinds of mistakes, I'd rather take that than some fucking, not I want to say age, but some fucking person that's been in the business forever and they've seen and done everything. That is the last person I want to take Momofuku to new and different places. And um, I love my company and I love everyone that works there and have, will work there. And I do believe Marguerite is the person that will do a better job than me. It's like using any kind of equipment in a kitchen. It's if you use it, leave it better than you found it. And um, I cannot think of a better custodian than Marguerite. And listen, this is a weird podcast because we're literally talking about our own company, my own company with, uh, but whatever, it's my fucking podcast. So I'm not going to get to an ask Dave at majordomainmedia.com question because I can't get into my phone because the battery died. So I don't know what the fucking questions are. So stay tuned next week. Thanks again, guys. Give us five stars however you rate this podcast. Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes. Uh, Thanks again, guys. Take it easy.